Hello, and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. to the episode. Uh, just a brief introduction here. As you can probably tell from the title, this is not your typical episode. This is more of an interview show. In fact, let me get some background that's appropriate to why this has happening. Uh, yes, that is indeed some drones. Um, I've mentioned several times that Droning On has become my favorite podcast. And you know, James Moyer over there makes it sound so easy for two pipers. This is down in chat that I wanted to copy that is a little bit why this episode exists. After doing it, tell you what, it ain't easy. Uh, new respect for the Droning On podcast. The other reason I wanted to do this uh, interview is I've been mentioning um, a lot since the end of season five that I've been kind of hoping to get a guest host or co-host and actually already had somebody in mind, and that is who we are talking to today. So this is sort of going to serve as a uh, kind of introduction for John Charles to, uh, for everybody to get to know him a little bit and his history with piping. Uh, I kind of wish that I had done an introduction episode back when I started, so I thought it'd be good to, to do kind of uh, a little bit of an interview and chat with John Charles. Um, before he starts doing episodes occasionally. Not sure how often those are going to happen or when, um, but he's got a new blog that has started up recently where he's looking at Porstabile and walking songs and playing them on pipes. And uh, yeah, I hope that he's going to share some of that with us, but before he does, it seemed like it'd be cool to get to know him a bit better. Uh, you've probably already, the name probably sounds familiar, I've talked about him before. Uh, he is the incredibly kind human being that lent me uh, the, that set up order pipes for a better part of a year. Um, so you've definitely heard his pipes many times before. Uh, anyway, I guess we'll cut these drones out and get started with the interview before, well, I guess we'll... We'll go in on the legend spreads from the Braveheart soundtrack for reasons which will become clear, I guess, as our conversation gets going. A um, little bit of a hiccup with the sound recording. I was trying to find a better audio quality than just recording off the Zoom, and I did, but the first time out I made some errors. I think it's still better than just recording off the Zoom uh, sound card kind of thing, but, uh, but yeah, apologies for the sound snafus. And cheers.
Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for doing this. Um, so something I've, like, as I talk to more pipers, uh, just sort of in general, I'm starting to get interested in the tunes that got people interested in bagpipes. So uh, I'm sort of curious, like, what was the first tune, uh, if there was a tune that motivated you to want to learn pipes, or, like, what was the first tune that, that got you, and then as you were learning, because I think most of us probably start with some tune that we're rather embarrassed with now, but then, like, after a year or two, we're like, oh, no, no, this is it. This is the tune we want to know. It's not Scott and the Brave, actually. It's Clumsy Lover or whatever, so... Right, right. Your tune biography. Yeah, I think you'll love this because definitely Braveheart, the Braveheart theme, and uh, there's this uh, there's this other tune in Braveheart called The Legend Spreads. I mean, both of these are on Illand Pipes, right? But me as a young Highland Piper, not yet knowing the difference between the two, kind of in that early phase of figuring out what's, what's what with bagpipes, it was like, I'm going to play Braveheart. Um, so, you know, the disillusionment set in quickly as I realized I had picked the wrong bagpipes. Um, but serious answer, Itchy Fingers. Oh, yeah. Definitely Itchy Fingers. I had an album. I think this was on that album that is by um, Laura McKenzie. Uh, but I may be getting it mixed up. But anyway, I, I had this album that somebody had, like, you know, pirated for me and, and lent to me. And there was this Itchy Fingers recording of it. And that just sounded like the most incredible thing to me. And uh, I didn't know what it was called because the CD was pirated. I didn't know the names of the tracks, right? So it was like this unattainable thing. How will I ever find out what this tune is? And then um, years later, heard somebody playing it. And I, I just had to tackle them like, what are you playing? So, yeah. Did you play it as part of a, did you figure it out by ear or did you just wait? Were you just always waiting as like the mythic quest to figure out what this tune is? <laughs> right, yeah, the, more more of a mythic quest. I think I, I attempted to learn it by ear but didn't quite get it, which is funny because it's a pretty simple tune, but um, yeah, yeah the, you know, whatever, it's hard when you're learning. Figuring out exactly. That, it's, it's hard remembering back to what a mystery that sort of syncopated um, high A stuff was before you mm -hmm. before you knew how to do it. It seemed like wizardry, right? Like right, because you think maybe it's two pipers or maybe they're cutting out. Like it's sort of a optical illusion for your ears, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I, I think kind of talking about Laura McKenzie, I wonder if this features into another question of kind of what made you want to learn bagpipes. I know when we met before, we, we talked about both being influenced by those, uh, like, Celtic music, uh, mm -hmm. like, sound stands, uh, which I know is how I first heard a lot of piping, and that's where Laura McKenzie comes in a lot. But, yeah, what was your what was your motivation to learn pipes? Yeah, the, the very first bagpipe experience for me was a Highland Games in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the Charleston Highland Games. Um, I think I was 14, maybe 15, and just kind of went with my family and uh, immediately hooked. Like, the Charleston Highland Games are on this amazing um, grounds with, like, old oak trees, and it was, like, a misty morning, like, the most, you know, mythical experience you could have of you get out of the car in the parking lot and there's bagpipes just wafting fr from afar and uh, just, just completely, like romanced me, you know, that, that overwhelming kind of mystical experience of, of how just cool and ethereal the pipes are. Um, and, I, and I was uh, probably 14 or 15. I think I was probably 14 when I first, and, and that was the first time I heard them live. Um, yeah, and, and I became like completely obsessed with them. Just, it was all I could think of for probably two years. Like every single day was 
how am I going to play bagpipes and how am I going to find more bagpipes to listen to? Um, so my parents, not super into bagpipes, to just kind of understate it a little bit, um, not interested in the idea of bagpipes being brought into the house um, and, and played indoors, right? Um, so I, I was kind of suspended in this state of like childish obsession that I couldn't couldn't play yet for a couple years and I started playing at 16. So in that period of time it was like yeah whatever CD I could get my hands on like the, the Walmart like sound soundstage things maybe we should explain how those work for for your international audience or a, your younger audience. Yeah, it's such a weird like I don't know it's such a sad I don't like music is easier to come by now but there's something I think lost by not being able to wander into a Target or, um, you know, like a department store or a bookstore and have like a panel of uh, branded music that has got really talented musicians on it, but like their name is somehow void from it. Like, so mm -hmm. Laura McKenzie's bagpipe album, it's Celtic bagpipes. And then you click right. the button and it'll play like 20 second clip of some really awesome bagpipes or not. Like generally the bagpipe ones, it'll always play uh, like in hindsight, sort of the lamest track on the album. Like, Oh, here's amazing grace again or whatever. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I definitely, I remember as a kid going to like Barnes and Noble, and there was a Alton had an an album, Alton. I can't remember quite how to pronounce it, but they had a they had an album that was kind of branded that way in the states, um, which is a, a band from Donegal, I think, in Ireland. And uh, but I I just remember like hitting that button over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I think people kind of there's an office bit about that too. Uh, when Michael Scott is going through a breakup, he's listening to the sound sample. Uh, of, a, of a thing online, I, I guess is how it is transitioned. Maybe you can still get um, audio samples on iTunes or something. I'm not quite sure. But. Yeah, and it, what's funny about those panels is like everything is just reduced to the genre name. So like you click on a button that says country or blues or Celtic, yeah. and like so everything about it is erased except for just a a like broad marketing genre like Celtic. Yeah. Yeah, genres weird me out. Like, still, like, I, I, I used to be really worried about... I mean, I guess it's been replaced by thumbnails. So I'm like, well, what thumbnail or hashtag you put on a thing? It's always weird to, like, oh, is this folk or is this Celtic? Is this Scottish? Is this Irish? It's, uh, no, it's, it's Celtic bagpipes. That's what Barnes & Noble has decided. That is what all of this is. Right. You should rename the podcast, you know, <laughs> we, we Two Talks Celtic Bagpipes. Yeah, that'll, that'll, be, that'll go over great. It'll be great. I need more names. Um, yeah, it's interesting thinking about that um, that childhood desire to be a piper because I, I, I lucked out. I had uh, I had a dad that desperately wanted me to play bagpipes because I lived with my mom. Um, I think like strategically, like thought this would be the greatest vengeance uh, ever. So I had a set of pipes by the time I was ten. But there was still like a year and a half long period where I was fantasizing about like finding a set of bagpipes that had fallen off a train or something or mm -hmm. uh like going scuba diving and like oh there's gonna i'm just gonna find some <laughs> some bagpipes at the bottom of this lake if i if i dive deep enough in wisconsin you know that's how that's where bagpipes are found is at the bottom of the lakes and at the side of train tracks in wisconsin everybody knows this um, that's amazing see see i wanted to make some out of pvc pipe because i think you know the 90s was was probably the era of like homemade instruments on on websites, you'd like find this website of somebody making PVC bagpipes, and there's no YouTube video instructions. There's there's kind of a like a hand drawn diagram, 
but that was kind of, you know, for young teenage me, seemed like the best hopes I had of getting right. bagpipes for a while. Did you ever do it? No, I, d- I definitely didn't go through with it. I, I made plans. I, you know, I kind of started to try, but I, I never went all the way with it. Yeah, I did, I did one low D whistle on PVC and, and one whistle using a uh, ski pole uh, when I worked at a worked at a ski mountain like rental shop and you know you're really busy in the morning and really busy in the afternoon or like evening and then you're really dull and like kind of dead in the middle of the day when everybody's out skiing so we would just tinker around the shop and I definitely had a broken ski pole that I turned into a pretty crappy whistle um but yeah the PVC whistle sucked uh and it was it was the only one I had so I I thought it was great uh and I actually played mostly in key um but as soon as I got a real low D whistle, I was like, I'm never touching that again. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. a waste of time. But, hmm. So you started uh, piping down in South Carolina. Like, right. You got in, to, like, did the pipe bands down there give out lessons or give out pipes or anything like that? Did you have a... Um, so I, so I, I got my start in Charleston, South Carolina, really not with the band itself, just like a, a piper. I, I would just bike to his house and took lessons from him directly. Um, Peter Armstrong, I, I still remember him as a, a really good teacher. Um, he was very analytical. I was very analytical. The way he just talked about the grace notes and like how long the long grace notes are versus the short ones, it just all kind of, you know, sunk in really well. Um, so I enjoyed his his lessons. But my family moved um, just a few months after I had started taking lessons with him to Columbia, South Carolina. Um, so I fell in with a different band there and that was more of the like pipe band situation where you just, you kind of show up on their band practice night and then the beginners go off in another room and do beginner things. Um, and, uh, I don't believe they charged for that. I think that was a really nice free instruction period. Yeah. Pipe bands are always, uh, I always love how like kind of desperate they are for a new, <laughs> for a new piper. So it's right. They have to, right? Yeah. But I hear about like other bands where they have a pile of instruments to like give out to beginners that's mm-hmm. kind of the norm too which definitely wasn't my experience but i can see that being kind of removing that um threshold for right um no i did i did order my first set of pipes from uh henderson's or, or midwest bagpipe supplies whichever it was called at the time um so it was like money that i had made doing construction and my parents pitched in to let me get like the nicer set of nickel. Um, so that was nice. And I remember when that first came and I went out in this little wooded strip between, uh, you know, the houses and, and just did my very best to try to play Amazing Grace, right? Nobody there to show me how to set it up. Um, just very excited to have a set of pipes and very in awe of them. Yeah, that was, that was good. Yeah. Yeah, those first, it's, I always, uh, for me anyway, I was so desperate to play when I was first learning that I wanted, like, I was just constantly playing and wanted everybody to hear me. And then the better I got, the less I wanted people to hear me. Like, mm-hmm. it was definitely a, a float, of, you know, whatever, a chart that would, you know, as I, as I improved, I got more self-conscious about people listening. Whereas my first year with Pipes, I was, like, doing one-man parades around the neighborhood where people would come out. <laughs> and I'd be like, you just don't appreciate good music. Like, no, dude works like in the nights and you're just marching around poorly playing Scott on the Brave on repeat. Like, right, right. But, hmm. So you wound up, um, I guess I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but um, so, so you wound up competing with the band and... 
through that whole he, thing? Is that he, the same band you were with in Scotland? Or? Um, yeah, I can kind of go through the, the timeline pretty quickly. So I, I don't think I did a competition with the South Carolina band, the Palmetto Pipes and Drums, because I was still uh, just still learning by the time I'm, I moved to school. So I went to school in Illinois at Wheaton College. Um, so wasn't with a pipe band competitively for a long time until I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, let me think, 2012. Anything pre-COVID is just so hard to think of uh, dates, right? Like, it's all the same. It's all the before time. But uh, yeah, I think 2012, I settled in Milwaukee and uh, got set up with the Milwaukee Scottish Pipe Band. That's where, you know, our experiences kind of start to overlap because we were in rival bands at different times, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I left... I, oh, I was, I was gone by then, I guess. I, I left... Uh, I quit playing with Billy Mitchell... Uh, Scottish Pipes and Drums right over in Milwaukee when I was uh, right around the time you were starting playing I guess uh, um, I think I was like 13 or 14 and I kept on getting I got I kept on getting irritated that every time they go to play the new the fun stuff the stuff I wanted to be playing um, they tell me to leave because I wasn't uh, I was I was very poorly disciplined <laughs> like just refused to play the same grace notes or um, to, to that sort of thing. So, like, when they were playing hornpipes and reels and jigs, I was just causing trouble rather than contributing to anything. So, so, so they kicked you out of the band or just had you leave the room? Like, what? Practice, yeah. So okay. Every time it would be time to switch over to, like, practicing the hornpipes and jigs, I would, I would be told, all right, Jeremy, you know, it's, it's time to go. Um, which was, you know, a bummer. Um, and, but they, I did one gig. I played Irish Fest with them once and realized that uh, they weren't letting me play the fun stuff. And I also didn't care for marching, so uh, I quit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that, right? <laughs> yeah, like, it uh, turns out, not a, not a fan of that stuff. But uh, definitely wish I hadn't. It was sort of teenage teenage hormones or whatever, like, I'm too cool for this. Uh, I'm going to go play bagpipes on my own kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I definitely would be a better piper today if I had stayed with that uh, stayed with that band for for longer. But well, or at least it would have. I wouldn't have taken as long to be where I'm at now. Um, I suppose. But. So did you do the solo competition stuff with uh, before Milwaukee or? Not? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did a couple solos at different times. Um, I maybe did one or two when I was in South Carolina. In fact, I think I did practice chanter. Um, yeah, it's nice. It's nice that they have practice chanter competition for people that are, you know, still on the chanter. Kind of a nice way to get the f- the format under control. You started get- with a chant with a practice chanter, right? R- right. I a buddy of mine was learning in um, in Western Wisconsin, and like I just remember being so disappointed starting with a practice chanter rather than pipes. Mm-hmm. And this poor dude, um, he started with a stick with holes in it, like just with holes drilled in it. Wow. So you would get used to where your fingers would go. Uh, uh-huh. That was how you started. I was like, that is, I guess that's a way to make the practice trainer seem more exciting if you've been upgraded right. from a stick. Uh, but yeah, I was like, sure. I've heard of that before. Uh, so here's a, here's a, like a research tangent you or somebody should go on is like historical training methods for pipers, like uh, going back to different time periods. Do we, do we know that? Is that pretty well understood. Have there been practice chanters around for hundreds of years? I kind of love how it's clear that um, Joseph McDonald is learning on a whistle, um, and it seems like, uh, or is, is kind of keeping his piping up on a whistle, and there's a um, those vegetable whistles that you can make, you know, where you skin uh-huh. out, take the, the outer bark of a, a plant, 
um, there's a couple places in the, the Hebrides where like the, there's something that grows well there that, that works for that and that seems to be what people were learning on uh, quite a lot and then there's of course the stock and horn which looks a lot like a practice chanter but there's a big horn on the end of it um, that seems to be either used for instruction or used just as a standalone shepherd's instrument um, but I think I think a lot of it is just singing um, yeah I don't, I don't know that it's particularly well understood the, the mythos of like there's it's hard <laughs> it's hard because there's such a myth of like bagpiping schools and um, mm-hmm. it's really hard to devoid your brain from the idea of enrolling at Boreg and like living in a crofty dorm thing for a couple of years which is just absolutely not what happened but that's that's what my brain fills up every time I hear about going to piping school in the 18th century is that you're you know studying with the McCrimmons for years as opposed to what it seemed to be which was like a couple weeks <laughs> like you'd go and visit an old piper for a couple weeks and learn a couple tunes and then um, then you'd, you'd leave um you also, I don't know, Keith Sanger is sort of on this big kick that there were just so few bagpipes rolling around that it'd be really mm-hmm. hard um, to do to do that, and that you kind of would just, like a community might have a set of pipes that they would share around, uh, or like the Lord would have one that whoever his piper would be would be playing because they were so expensive, but... I don't know. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know why I, I said somebody should research this like you haven't already. I should have just asked the question, hey, Jeremy. <laughs> but uh, I don't yeah. really, I, I feel like my answer is a no, man. Yeah, it's it's definitely a big, funny, big, funny question. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, so you competed in practice trainer and then at, uh, at Milwaukee, you started doing pipe band competitions like right that that just des- that description of the South Carolina games that's why I was asking how old you were just because um like I was not a morning kid ever but that meant that um showing up in um like when you'd wake up early in the morning to show up at the games or something and you're still in like that half I was always still in that half asleep mode but pulling up to the Milwaukee Highland Games as a kid and having that same you know the the fair food smell and bagpipes wafting and people shouting and throwing cavers and stuff was just such a such a good uh impressionable feeling on my like nine-year-old brain right yeah it's like walking into a dream world you know um yeah so so you competed there at the milwaukee highland games i'm sure i did i competed with the band um did solos for a couple seasons um yeah it, it went all right i was in grade four but really i think pretty much at the at the peak of my like highland piping game and then uh competed at grade four and so so i did really well because i i I sort of entered at grade four because i hadn't been competing but just sort of did did really well at competition and then next year competed at grade three and then that was considerably harder um, so I had like a like a really nice kind of a clean sweep sort of season in grade four, and then grade three just felt like so much harder. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the I'm, I'm kind of um, yeah. I just I never I, I did it. I think I've told my stories about comp- uh, competition before, but like I, I competed in grade five I think twice. Uh, never registered like with the piping competition association just showed up on the day and asked to compete and i was a young and dumb enough kid that they're like i guess we should let him compete um and like did that twice and then figured out i was supposed to be paying dues and i was like i don't think i want to do that um and then quit the band shortly after so just was out of that out of that world completely um but yeah you did the you kind of did the thing of of going over and competing in worlds with the pipe band right was that 
did that happen multiple times or did this was this just once so no i did i did one trip in 2018 and this was with the city of chicago pipe band right so every every step in this journey is a different pipe band like i I have no loyalty and no commitment to anything right so so long story short um was not playing with the milwaukee band for a couple years and then um that was probably a pretty aimless period for me in piping like um definitely wondering if i was still going to be piping which is a pretty big you know piping is, is is like kind of part of my lifelong identity big childhood obsession you know big big time commitment over the years and then I I got a little unsure like where is this all going what is my musical fulfillment that I'm gonna get out of this and and I just got this random phone call in 2017 um, from somebody with the city of Chicago band and they were kind of rounding up uh, every piper they could find, probably, because I, I got this call, right? So, like, Tony was aware of me, maybe he had heard me play at a comp, and, uh, and just very kindly gave me this opportunity. And, um, I, yeah, I think that was, like, an immediate yes for me. Like, you know, when you're sitting and wondering, like, what am I doing with my life and with piping? And somebody's like, do you want to go to Scotland? It's like, sure, I do. Um, yeah, so, yeah, then I... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just, I've, I've heard of, um, like, pipe majors complain about how their bands get gutted when one of the neighboring bands decides they're going to Worlds, and so they just, like, everybody just jumps ship. Like, oh, well, if they're going to Scotland, obviously I'm going to join that band and compete with them so I can get a trip to Scotland out of it. Definitely. Like, fair enough. Like, <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty easy to uh, to bait me with a trip to Scotland. I think uh, another friend had had asked me to join another Chicago band. I mean, basically an equivalent band, right? Like the next door band. And I was like, I don't have time for it. I don't think I'm going to play in bands anymore. And then this band is like, do you want to go to Scotland? You know, and, (laughs) and that's me. So, yeah. Um, Yeah. So that began like a, like a year long kind of process of preparing pretty hard for the worlds. I took it pretty seriously. I was pretty intense about it, trying to play you know the pipes every day play the competition set every day um and and we also did like a whole season of local highland games together so it wasn't just like the band is forming up to go to scotland it was like a competitive season in the midwest culminating do you have to like score sufficiently to like get accepted over there i don't don't even know how that process works yeah so you you write a letter to the, I think it's the RSPBA, Royal Scottish Pipe Band yeah, affiliates or something. Um, so anyway, you request, and they look at your your performance in your, your local area, and they also take individual pipers into consideration. So this is really fun. We had a couple people on the roster who had competed in grade one, um, really, really solid pipers, and we requested grade three, and they put us in grade 3A, like the upper half of grade three, just taking into account those people. Those people ended up dropping out uh, for various reasons. So it was kind of fun. I think we, we ended up, we had this feeling of like punching up, right? We, we've moved up a weight category, uh, so to speak, and, and then kind of didn't have our, our safety net of those couple sure. couple players. I mean, there, there's some really strong players in that band, but we, we lost some. So yeah, some, some kind of process like that where you ask to play in a grade and they tell you what grade you're going to play in. And that's the same time as Piping Live is going on at the same time? It is, yeah. So Piping Live has been on my radar for many years, like going back to 
childhood me trying to soak in all the bagpipes I can. Where do I get more bagpipes? Uh, and YouTube. When did YouTube come out? I feel like YouTube was just coming onto the radar around that time, early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Um, so piping live is one of those things that I would see clips of it on YouTube, and it was just the most incredible thing. I mean, really good performances there. And that was like like a journey to Mecca for me. It was like a, you know, the, the place to go. And so I didn't, I didn't know that was at the same time when this trip got scheduled. And then at some point I, I realized or connected the dots. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in Glasgow during Piping Live. So that was a really good experience. I didn't get to go to every single thing because, um, yeah, just, I mean, we spent a week in Glasgow practicing and it was pretty tiring. So I didn't always, you know, walk, take the short walk over to the piping center to hear, you know, world-class piping. Um, but I, I did get to hear some pretty outrageously good performances. So that was great. Having both of those experiences together was really great. And then did you did you just extend your stay or did you go back? I'm, I'm just always, like the, the bit that we've talked before, uh, it just, it always struck me. Like I had this big dramatic um, trip planned for myself in 2006 where I was gonna get, uh, I was gonna be at Culloden for like the anniversary and I was gonna go to Sabal Morristeg for Gaelic lessons and Peabrook lessons. And I had lined up, uh, some, I don't even know who, but somebody was gonna give me uh, fencing lessons when I was over there. And I was like, all right. I just remember it being a really funny conversation where I was like, I'm just kind of curious to learn some fundamentals while I'm in Scotland uh, as like a childhood thing. And like, I'm not gonna murder anybody with a sword, obviously. And whoever I was contacting was like, you really think killing somebody in a duel would be murder? And I was like, well, well, yeah. He's like, huh, I never thought of it that way. Um, I was like, okay, that's different. Um, yeah, that, that's the guy you want to learn sword fighting from, <laughs> right. guy with that kind of right. mentality. But but that whole trip kind of fell apart. I wound up getting a, a girlfriend instead and also realized that I was like currently in college and was planning on just leaving for a month um, on some big dramatic trip. Uh, and like, turns out that that's not how you're supposed to go to college, where you just leave for a month and not do academic things, and so uh, still graduate. So that trip didn't happen, but I, uh, like, knowing that you're interested in Supima stuff, maybe, and then the bagpiping, and then doing both of those things in Scotland, I was like, whoa, did we have, like, a same trip planned, except you did it? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so, so that is two different trips for me, two different years. So 2018 was the trip... To the worlds with city of Chicago um, pretty much just just there for that um, spent a week in Glasgow practiced with the bands got to see some Glasgow things see some piping live but uh, no like additional sightseeing going on and then in 2019 I went on the Highland Challenge with Paul McDonald so I don't even know how to describe what Paul McDonald is he's, he's many things yeah, uh... right right so Paul is a blacksmith, um, formerly working in Edinburgh, but now in the borders of Scotland. So he does some restoration work of, um, you know, historical swords. He makes replica World War II knives and generally is this amazing guy and archaeologist, treasure hunter. I, we could just spend the podcast listing it. Uh, so anyway, so Paul, he, he runs this event called the Highland Challenge, which um, it's like a week-long 
experience, like an immersive experience in the Highlands where you, you do some physical challenge. There's some like rugged outdoors kind of stuff, um, sort of a mystery challenge of the day every day. Um, and then also Paul taking you to historical places, telling stories, um, you know, evening revelry, ev everything you would want in like a Highland study and adventure kind of trip. Um, so that that was just a great trip, really really good. So I guess when we talked briefly uh, last summer, you made it sound like you competed at Worlds, and then that was the end of your Highland piping trajectory. Was that, mm -hmm. Did that feel like a well, I've done it, time to move on? Or just... I, I'm not sure. I think I think the narrative like can't help sounding that way because that is the last time I ever played Highland pipes, right? <laughs> um, like so. It does seem pretty conclusive. I don't think I somehow felt like I had climbed the last mountain, right? Um, it was a really good experience. Um, it was a year a year of playing the same tunes every day. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty easy to burn out. Yeah. Um, so I think that contributed, right? Like playing at the Worlds and then just feeling like, okay, all of this effort is behind me and this really grandiose experience. Um, but I was kind of building this desire to play music in a different context, sort of more of a session environment, more more enjoying a solo repertoire. Um, so I, I think, yeah, my my band experience itch had been had been scratched for a while. Maybe is a good way to say it. Um, and yeah, I literally didn't take the pipes out of the box after. Um, <laughs> After coming back from the world, so a nice hide bag and some cane reeds got very, uh, very ill-treated in that box for a while. But, um, you know, they're there and they're waiting, and I'm sure there will be Highland piping for me again. But it has been all about the bellows since then. Yeah, so was that happening simultaneously, or did you pick up a set mm. of small pipes kind of shortly after Right, there's a lot of overlap because I got a set of small pipes maybe eight or nine years ago um, in the in the deep pre-COVID right. era. Yeah, um, right. So I've had the small pipes for a long time, and yeah, just always always something I was trying. Definitely very um, aspirational for me. Talk about the YouTube videos and piping live. I think a lot of videos of Gary West playing, um, let's see, Ross Ainsley, um, just a number of border pipers kind of have been on, on my radar, border and small pipes, um, for years. Um, so yeah, I guess... So I, your approach to small piping then has always been, so you, your interest in it was not as a, this is a way to practice Highland pipes, but as a unique thing from the get-go. Definitely, definitely. I think the small pipes, especially seeing like some of these videos with like Gary West in some ornate Scottish yeah. room, you know, in a fireplace, like exactly. just seems very, we're, we're probably picturing the same, yeah, the same thing. Like the small pipes just have this different mystique to them of like sitting by the hearth, you know, kind of a, kind of a cozy, you know, they're cozy bagpipes, right? Um, so that, that was always something I wanted to do a kind of, venue where people would be just sitting and listening to piping music, not out in a field listening to piping music. Yeah, um, I, think that's, I, can't, I don't know if that's an LBPS or... I think it's an LBPS meeting, um, but I always, it's always fun to, like, date it, because there's uh, 
Jarlot Henderson and Andy May do a duet together, and I think they mm-hmm. both have long hair still at that point. You're like, oh, this is old. That's that's definitely exactly the video I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, speaking of like approach, um, for many years my approach was just play exactly what I'm playing on the Highland pipes on the small pipes, um, and and there were definitely indications that I shouldn't be doing that. I remember reading things on forums, people saying, you know, you, you don't grace note them the same way. I remember my like young or beginner self kind of uh, just discounting that, like, no, why would I? Why would I play it differently? Yeah, like, I have this skill set on the Highland Pipes, I'm just going to do that on the Small Pipes, and that'll be fine. Um, And it's only in the last year or so that I think I'm really diligently sitting down with the Small Pipes and treating them as a different instrument. Well, we could go back and forth on on what that means, right? But, like, taking a different approach to my fingering and, and really doing things uniquely on the Small Pipes that I wouldn't do on the Highland Pipes, um, that sort of where I'm at now with the instrument, uh, and that's that's pretty recent. Yeah. So border pipes. Um, I mean, so that's the the reason that we met in person was I was returning your border pipes to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how did how did that set come into your come into your life? Um, you, you yeah, I'm not a, sure. A uh, set of small pipes for a long time, or had you gone through a right. set of small pipes before then? Even no, I had the I had the Walsh pipes for you know since the beginning, nine years or so. Um, I guess the border pipes were always something I wanted for the versatility, um, cross fingering, uh, being able to play outside with more volume, just kind of, I think there are, there are venues where the border pipes are more suited. Um, yeah, so I think I just saw a set come up at a certain point where I was poised to be able to buy another set and got this really great Nate Banton set. So did you, and you had the Dixon and all that? Did you, did you get heavily invested in the William Dixon tunes ever, or, um, yeah, I guess. I, uh, I guess I, I was going through a phase just starting to play some Dixon tunes when, uh, a little bit of life upheaval kind of just shifted gears. Yeah, I, I sort of was playing Dixon tunes and then abruptly dropped the project yeah. some time ago. So I'll, I'll circle back to them at some point. Yeah. It's it's something that's interested me because you're um, the tunes that you're interested in are or it seems like the tunes that you're most interested in are specifically Gaelic mm-hmm. kind of Gaelic ventures and uh, maybe just from spending too much time with Matt Seattle but uh, he's adamant right like <laughs> it's kind of adamant that the Gaelic and Scots music are different things and border music is different from from Gaelic stuff mm-hmm. um, yeah so I was just curious how it uh, how your relationship was between those two. Sets of tunes, or two types of, of music, rather. But. Right. I definitely don't want to like draw a line and say I play this kind of piping music. Um, you know, with infinite time, I want to play all of it, every single thing. Um, in fact, I'm I'm just now dipping back into Gordon Duncan tunes, and I'm like, you know, Gordon Gordon Duncan is a huge influence, but there were definitely years where I like wasn't playing any of his tunes and. Right now, I'm like, why am I not playing every single Gordon Duncan tune? Like, the, he's he's one of the most, you know, towering figures, and, and just his tunes are great. They're so good. So that's another little side repertoire, right? I need to learn all the Dixon tunes, every Gordon Duncan tune, and every single Porsche de Beale. Yeah. Yeah, I, I keep on... I, I Yeah, the, the Gordon Duncan stuff, 
I, I should I should look at it again more closely too. Like it's not there's something that feels so incredibly modern, right, and like cutting edge about Gordon Duncan's tunes. Um, but then there's also like, but it's not at all. Like it feels very comfortable and familiar. The more time I spend looking at 18th century stuff and Irish stuff, like I can I can start to feel where his influences were because. Um, there's that cool documentary that was going around YouTube and Facebook a couple of years ago, but just pointing out how much of like Gordon's music came from these Irish influences and like sitting in an Irish sessions and um, like even I guess the whole second one of his books is um, that the the trust has put out is a lot of his Irish tunes or his Irish settings for tunes. But anyway, um, so talk about talk about Porstabule Porstab. Porsche to, yeah, yeah. Talk about that Gaelic word you just said. Uh, sure, say. sure. Yeah, so Purstbiol means mouth tunes. And um, yeah, it's a song tradition, vocal dance tunes. Um, they tend to sit very, very comfortably in the piping scale. Uh, there's, there's just a huge overlap of pipable tunes. Not every single one of them, I think, are, are pipable. So it's not one for one, but um, generally you can pipe them, and they're great. They're they're just very rhythmic. Um, the lyrics vary wildly in like how serious they are. Sure. We've we've kind of talked about this before, right? It's easy to think everything Gaelic is very serious, very like Arthurian and and mystical, and a lot of it is definitely. You know, there's some pretty serious ballads and some. Arthurian lore and Gaelic, but there's also just like a song about potatoes, yeah. uh, you know, and, and um, the push to tends to be a lot of like really lighthearted stuff. Um, yeah, like, hum, you know, one, one that I play a lot is called Humbantara Moor, which means the potato is big and uh, the potato is also dry. Um, Those are good, good qualities they, in the potato, I guess. They're great tunes. Like, what else, what else would you want to sing about, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, foods. I, just, I love that the night we had the goats. Uh, uh-huh, it's such a, right. a classic one to me. Yeah, that's the night we had the goats. Those three goats. Those three goats. We had three goats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's there's one that I'm I'm really fond of. That's kind of a puzzle. It's uh, it's put me in a big box with five buns on my head or five five bannocks on my head. Um. So, you know, you, you tell me what that means. I think it's about, uh, well, it's, it's uh, put me in the great chest, which is like a, f- like a, f- a food chest. Yeah. Put me in the great chest with five buns on my head, and that would be all right with me. So I think it's about, like, you know, accepting death, uh, accepting snacks, something, something like that, right? But it's just, it's a great tune. Um, so, yeah, so piping them seems pretty, pretty intuitive, pretty rewarding. Um, it's just a great, a great repertoire of tunes, and yeah, not not sure what to say other yeah, than that. So, like, a, um, was it like a big moment for you to, because um, you you competed at the like during COVID, right? When all of a sudden the LBPS competitions were accessible to everyone all over the world, uh, mm-hmm. thanks to COVID. All the good sides, right? Nobody, nobody praises COVID for uh, all the wonderful things it's given us. I feel terrible for even saying it as a joke. Uh, but like, <laughs> it was cool that everybody could compete at LBPS if they wanted to. And uh, I was kind of nervous. Uh, I was worried for you <laughs> as we were talking uh-huh. about it because you were competing with a bunch of these Highland and like Island tunes. Um, but it went well. It went well. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that's that's funny. I I, I kind of um. 
I think it's funny that you understood the dynamic there because I did not understand the dynamic there, right? So I'll tell that story um, about a year ago uh, is, is really when like my current uh, era of, of piping took off, um, starting lessons with Breach of Heimbel, uh, starting to really dig into the Gaelic tradition, all these things happening at once. And around that time, this LBPS competition becomes available to everybody. Um, so what's funny is I was walking away from the world of like competitive piping, band piping, and then almost the first thing I did was join another competition. Right. Um, but I thought, well, this will be different because it's sort of, it's not going to be a judge telling me whether my grace notes were in the right place. It's, it's sort of a musical thing. So it felt like the right thing to do. And at the time I was getting into walking songs. So that's another, um, you know, vocal genre. And, you know, I'll, I'll explain things like this in case people don't know about yeah. them. I'm sure many of your listeners will. I'm, so I'm curious I, about the difference, if there is a real obvious mm-hmm. difference between a walking song and a porstabule. In my head, sure. a walking song is a porstabule, but a porstabule isn't necessarily a walking song? Is that right? So I've, I've, never, um, I've never heard them considered one, one a category of the other. Uh, I think it's two, two different genres, and really the goals are different. Like in walking songs, you're trying to keep the beat for work being done, like women um, beating, beating cloth to uh, stretch it, uh, or shrink it, actually. Um, and yeah, there's a different, uh, there's a format where all the women will sing the refrain together, and one woman will sing or improvise a verse. Um, so there's kind of a verse-refrain alternation. Porstabile generally are like jigs and reels, strathspeys, and in general are dance tunes, but some of them don't really seem danceable. Every once in a while you get a, like a mixed meter. Um, So I'm still kind of uh, unpacking why that's the case. I'd I'd love to hear if anybody knows the answer, but it seems like, I think ostensibly it's like a dance form, but then a lot of these songs just exist for their own sake and aren't really danceable. Yeah. Um, Or we're just dancing wrong. I keep could on, could I very keep well on, be, yeah. I keep on thinking back to like we're just all doing this wrong. Like we're we're all insisting that things follow our understanding of like music theory or dance mm-hmm. theory, and not let it be uh, like some sort of chaos. Um, I mean, mostly I'm influenced right. by like Patrick McDonald's those essays in the beginning of Patrick McDonald's collection. Just feel so much like there's a level of them that's like, oh no, there's just chaos. Everything is different every time and this is different, mm-hmm. but here's here's a version that came through once, you know? And then I, I think too about like how there's a, a different measure all of a sudden. Like that was sort of a cutting edge thing in the 90s and aughts and like kitchen piping was to, oh, and now we're gonna, I mean, Gordon Duncan does that, does that right? Like, and now we're gonna have a, a measure or three or a line that is wildly different measured than the rest of it. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I've definitely uh, distracted you from answering the question. Oh sure, I mean we're a couple we're a couple tangents deep, right? But uh, speaking of like the chaos, right? Um, I was at an event, kind of mixing up which Zoom event because that summer there were so many Zoom events that I could go to all of a sudden. So I think it was Cargis, um, like an American bellows piping group, and, and Timothy Cummings, mm, cool. I believe, was teaching about um, dances from Brittany, and he said that you know it was like a three four tune and people dance a four four dance. So the the tune and the dance kind of sometimes are in sync and sometimes are not and it like phases in and out and he said nobody cares like they're just 
they're able to maintain their dance and maintain their music and nobody gets confused by it, but it doesn't like line up the way we expect it to. And I always keep that in mind when I encounter one of these like irregular Porsche Beal. I'm like, to me, this seems not danceable, right? Because they're dropping beats left and right. But then, you know, maybe people just uh, get by and, and I'm, I'm not a dancer. I don't really know much about dancing. So I try not to, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer. Yeah, I always say that I, I got involved in music so I didn't have to dance. Um, mm-hmm. But I keep, I keep thinking like, oh, I need to, I should dance more to understand what the music is supposed to be doing. But I kind of like, I, I like that uh, that Britney example of like, no, I don't have to. I don't, I don't have to worry about it. Right. <laughs> anyway, so you went into um, you went into the LBBS competition right. with some walking songs. Walking songs, right? Because uh, that was what I was excited about. I love walking songs. They're just the best and the idea of playing them on the pipes was very novel to me um people are starting to do that more and more and i'm excited about it but i think in general it's pretty unprecedented not a lot of walking piping um so i put together a little set and i was like this is what i'm taking to the lbps and you know i think i was still learning a lot about scotland even with with all this like lifelong fixation on piping right i think the highland versus lowland distinction isn't really something i understood culturally until a couple of years ago so it didn't strike me as an odd thing to do is to take like songs from the outer isles and go into a uh ostensibly you know lowland piping event right. um so i played I, I played and hamish moore was the judge very nerve-wracking, right? Very, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, another towering figure who, who's been there in the background all my life. Um, so I played for Hamish, and um, you were there, which was which was nice. And yeah, I did I did well. I, I played I played as well as I could, and the the judging was kind. And I got this email from from Hamish Moore, like the the judge's notes, right? right. And and he he said some nice things about my piping, which which was really nice. But he, he said something very, just very, very kindly reminded me that maybe playing Gaelic songs at the Lowland Piping Society just wasn't the, the normal course of action. Um, well, Ian Crane did the same thing. So it's, you know... It, oh, yeah, he, yeah. he sang Hamiski, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But, and he, I think he also placed or took first place or something. I think he won, yeah, yeah. So that's funny. I should ask him if he if he sort of did that knowingly or not. Because I wasn't being cheeky, right? I just genuinely genuinely didn't think, oh, Lowland Highland, sort of a different musical scene. I just was like, here are these tunes I'm playing on my on my small pipes. But uh, I mean, nobody was mad, no. right? This isn't a story about how I got in trouble or or people no. were gatekeeping me. But it was just like a, a gentle reminder of like this is sort of a different genre of music than you know, we're, we're sort of here to celebrate. Yeah. So what did it feel? I mean, other than it being zoom and solo and that stuff, um, did it feel really different from competitions you've done in the past? I mean, I, it's such a hard thing to compare because of the different settings, but like, yeah. How did, how did it compare your, your experience mm-hmm. from Highland pipes to competing for LBPS? Yeah. So first of all, it was a lot more music. Like when you pipe and, and me still being in the lower grades, uh, of um, Highland Pipe competition, I would play a 2-4 march or a Strathspey and Reel. And, um, you know, Strathspey and Reel, eight parts of music that's starting to get, you know, it's a lot to do end-to-end without making any mistakes, but um, 
at the LBPS event, you had like four minutes, and that's a long time. Um, and these walking songs are short. They're, they're pretty pretty quick, so you can play them four times, and it starts to get old fast. So I, I had a medley of like six of these tunes, and um, I was trying to add tunes to that set, you know, down, down to the wire, just to try to make length and, and play for four minutes. So that part was was difficult, but also the, you know, the stakes are different. I, I knew that I was trying to play musically. I was trying to play something that sounded good um, and less trying to accurately produce every embellishment that's on the page. You know, it's a different goal. Um, and so it felt better in that sense. Like I can, I can make a mistake and somebody's not going to say, you missed the D grace note on the third measure of the second line, right? Um, that mistake might not even come across as long as the music's there. So I, I really enjoy that idea of competing for musicality's sake and not uh, sort of this ultra technical thing. And, and you know, not to, I, I want to make sure this isn't too judgmental, right, uh, of the, the Highland piping scene, but I, I think just what I'm looking to get out of my piping, I think was more served by that format you know, play four minutes of music, and then we'll tell you if we liked it or not. Um, Did they do any... I know in the past when they've met in person, LBPS does like a um, crowd crowd score. They didn't do anything like that for the Zoom, though, did they? They didn't. Yeah, I can't imagine how they would. Um, but, like, I, I, I got the sense that it was like a plaza-meter, right? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, pe people were still um, figuring out Zoom at the time. I mean, this was like February 2021, where, you know, COVID lockdowns had been around for some time, but I think people were just starting to go to Zoom as alternatives, right? We had like 2020, sort of everything got canceled. 2021, everything was, was online. Um, so, you know, people sort of st still learning how to turn original sound on and off. Um, so, so at the LBPS event, there was, there was a man getting a haircut um, and he, he unmuted during the haircut and, you know, crazy stuff happens on Zoom calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of funny at, like, at this stage in the pandemic of, like, y'all don't know how to, still don't know how to do Zoom, still haven't figured that out. Um, mm -hmm. It's, yeah, there's, I think there's some people that are, like, holding, desperately holding on to, like, I'm just not going to learn how to do this. I, I refuse to let this become a part of my life, as opposed to... I don't know, I think a lot of, uh, speaking for myself anyway, like as a musician that has always lived in places where there isn't a ton of other musicians like me, uh, the pandemic like opened up all these worlds that I didn't participate in before, like hanging out with other Ellen Pipers and other Pipers and being able to zoom into Scotland uh, was like, oh, I'm going to figure out how to do this well so that I can participate in that more. Mm -hmm. Good. Good, a good side effect of it. Yeah, and I, pl I played a lot of Zoom sessions with Far North Retreats, you know, another event that's just off in Scotland somewhere and inaccessible to me and then magically available on Zoom at, like every other month. Um, and uh, yeah, I played a session with, with Breacha and this was like really early in my lessons with her and really early in my kind of current phase in piping, so I was still still kind of getting my bearings with like this way of playing the small pipes and working really hard to play Breach's jig set. Um, what is it? The Old Woman's Dance and the Skylark's Ascension um, is like one of my favorite sets of all time. And Breach was playing that on the session. And so 
we all start playing and I'm playing and it was just this cool experience of like, oh my gosh, I'm playing this jig set with Breach It. And then some guy on mutes by accident and he's playing and I was like, oh, I'm playing with this guy too. <laughs> sort of a, not, not the same experience. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't, I've, I've done it. I've done it once, I guess, maybe twice. Done the whole play with people. That's cool. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. I did not expect it to feel... I can see how people might get burned down on it, but um, yeah, it was, it was super enjoyable. So did you, when you were competing or, or at any point, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, or talked some about Porcibule and things, but did you ever mess with Peabrock or did, did that miss you? Hmm. I did a little bit of Peabrock. Um, Peabrock just seemed like a mountain to climb, right? At all points in time, it's it seemed intimidating. Um it seemed intimidating in the like pipe competition world, and now, sort of in my my current kind of Gaelic focused era, it still seems intimidating, right? Sure. Even with like a like a like a Gaelic song kind of focused, sure. it's always hard. But anyway, um, yeah, I did it. Secret, like you unlock you unlock Peabrook somehow by learning Gaelic is what it seems like in my head. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so let's see yeah i did it i did it at highland games a couple times and you know again in the lower grades so i maybe did the ground or ground and a variation or something like that um yeah it definitely seemed like something that you you kind of can't get right unless you like have um some connection to some teacher or judge who just tells you whether it's right or not yeah. like you're not going to get you're not going to get it right just from the printed page. Um, so Lament for Mary McLeod has always been my favorite Peabrock. Um, it's just very, very beautiful, very tuneful to me. And so I was competing with that one. I remember getting, I, I competed with it at a Highland Games and then the judge sort of closed his eyes and leaned back and just started like humming and, and giving me this like Peabrock lesson on the spot and that was that was pretty cool right he's like ah, oh, it's kind of you got to break it into phrases and he just started humming and like his judge's feedback turned into like a whole lesson in that particular Peabrock um but I really got the sense like yeah I'm not going to be able to do this well unless I have a teacher that can teach me this in particular um yeah and then nowadays I'm interested in doing Peabrock again and not in the kind of competitive mode but more you know, a little more exploratory of some older ways of playing Peabrock. And I took a class with Alan McDonald last year, and he gave us a handful of Peabrock. So I've got all of his, like, recordings. I've got the whole lecture recorded. Um, so everything's there and in place for me to commit some serious time to playing Peabrock. But, um, yeah. So yeah, it's just a, it's a time thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's... Uh, I definitely... It might have been the thing that, like, kind of made me decide for sure that I didn't want to do competition was just how much I enjoyed listening and playing Peabrook, but hated the idea that it had to that I couldn't just like go off on the tangents that I wanted to explore whenever I was playing Peabrook, like mm -hmm. that it had to be exactly the same every time, and that you weren't allowed to, because it really lends itself to interpretation and exploration in a way that like most other pipe music doesn't I feel like and that it's like the antithesis to competing with it but mm -hmm. um, so Gaelic is like often praised as uh, like I said maybe maybe wrongly but you know because of you know reading and, and watching some stuff that Alan McDonald has done there's always this idea that like 
the, we're, we're all missing the Gaelic component to Peabrook, and that's the problem with it. And if we had Peabrook, or had Gaelic, then we would understand Peabrook better. Um, has that influenced your um, your interpretation of these kind of mouth music songs too, or? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so, so going back to like a year ago, kind of all this stuff taking off for me all at once, um, I, I found Alan McDonald's thesis, which you can find in audio form, like a lecture that he gave, as well as like the, the bound, you know, like the manuscript version of the thesis. Um, and that, that was my exposure to this idea of like how connected Gaelic song and piping are. And he's talking specifically about Pibrach, but, um, you know, obviously walking songs, Porsche to Beale, there's all these different song genres that are in the Gaelic language and the things that make them like uniquely Scottish, uniquely Gaelic, like all the little little rhythmic idiosyncrasies are are very much like linguistic idiosyncrasies. Um, there's a cool lecture you can find. I'll have to send you a link to this later. It's called The Scots Snap, The Bigger Picture. Sure. And the man talks about um, that snap rhythm and how how built into the Gaelic language that is. Like there's a lot of words that have the emphasis on the first syllable, not the second. Um, yeah, like brochan, uh, brochan chiri. That's that's kind of a fun one because there's a song brochan chiri on a holm, and uh, everything's a snap, right? Well, like if you were to just just read the words on the page, you're kind of it's snappy. You can hear the like Scott snap and the Strathspey rhythm just coming out in like the 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 rhythms of the language itself. So, so, th- so that's kind of a cool concept that I, I became aware of that, like, you know, one of the things that makes Gaelic music the way it is, is, is just how the language is. Right. Um, so that I think uh, that's just an exciting concept to me that you can, um, find these connections between the two. And I, I try and be careful how I talk about it. Right. Like, I don't want to say you have to learn Gaelic to, XYZ, right? Um, but I will say, I find that learning some Gaelic has really helped me appreciate these songs better, and I think it's coming out in my piping. I think the like rhythms and ornaments that I do in my piping, I'm trying to replicate the sounds that I hear in the vocal performances. And, and like try and do things on the pipe chanter that are like linguistically sound, if that makes sense. It's kind of um, that kind of a sense. like I, mm-hmm. I think um, I keep on struggling with this uh, kind of Keith Sanger thesis of the scarcity of bagpipes, um, but it's always been true. Like instruments are are far. I mean, I'm coming at this from a historical interest, right? I'm always like everything is grounded in how does the 18th century feel about this discussion that I'm having is sort of where my brain goes, but. Um, like in the 18th century, people are going to sing way more than they're going to perform an instrument or hear a musical instrument, almost always. So it makes sense that if the dominant form of music to a person or their community is vocal, then the instrument would wind up copying some of that as well. Like it's it makes sense that it would influence it. And there's mm-hmm. certainly like people are then you know nostalgic or wanting to hear bagpipes, so then they're singing to emulate bagpipe stuff too. But I think there's certainly going to be some um, back and forth with it, that uh, that would make sense to me. Anyway, so yeah. what's this uh, this current? So one of the reasons we're talking is uh, you're you, you've launched your blog that we've been talking about for a while. So mm-hmm. uh, what's your what are you doing? What's this blog? Why should everybody look at it? 
Sure. Um, so I, I started a blog. Uh, it's called Asan Toper, uh, fr- from the well, and that's kind of a pun on Toper on Dulchash or Kistarishes, right? Yeah. Um, I wanted to make a Gaelic pun, okay? I wanna, yeah, I wanna be good. cool. Um, yeah, and I was, I was on the fence, like, should I use a Gaelic name or not? Like, um, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't resist the like broad reference to Toper on Dulchash, yeah. um, because mostly what I'm doing is I'm listening to vocal performances on that site in those archives and then just trying to play them on the pipes um trying to play um i would say like faithfully to the vocal performance but um you know also doing some other musical things on the pipes but the primary goal is to just um celebrate that vocal performance and learn what i can about piping from it so in the blog i'll take like one song per post and present my arrangement of it on the small pipes, present the original track that I'm I'm interpreting there, and post some sheet music, and then talk about, you know, any additional stuff that I've learned about that tune. So that's the goal. And, um, yeah, so... So you have one up already. I have, uh, I should have about three tune posts now. Blogs just mm. slip right past me, man. Right, right. Yeah, so I I, uh, I wanted to come out strong in the first week, so I, I made several recordings, and that's like my strategic reserve of recordings, so I could post every day without having to record more. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll see how quickly I keep up. I want to do at least one a week, um, so that'll be good. Oh, that's cool. So the I'm just looking at praise your shoes because mm-hmm. I'm just. Uh, horrified to try to pronounce Gaelic. Is there, so if there's, do you have translations for the words at all? Like, um, like, is there the, so porstabule are generally, um, what do you call it when it's not actually words, but sound? Yeah, vocables. Um, yeah, it's a mixture. So, so like vocables come up a lot. Porstabule, I think, tends to be pretty, like pretty, um, verbal. Like, like there's full lyrics and then there may be some vocables thrown in, whereas like walking songs, the whole refrain is usually vocables. Um, that that I guess that's something that characterizes the difference because in a in a walking song, everybody's going to join in the chorus, and so they're all singing these vocables that don't mean anything. You know, hiri hio, hiri hio, something like that. I don't sing, but. Um, you know, I think the idea is that ever well, you know, <laughs> um, so yeah, nobody has to memorize like a lot of linguistic content. They they just have these like easy fa la 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 kind of lyrics to memorize, and then the person that's singing as the soloist may be reciting something. They may be making up words on the fly. Um, Porsche de Beale is a lot more like songs, like they kind of have uh, multiple verses and things like that. Um, so yeah, oftentimes I find the lyrics, Topra and Dulchash will not often have the lyrics. Um, sometimes they'll have a transcription and that's really nice. Um, I'll look up lyrics anywhere I can and they don't often coincide with what I hear just because, you know, being folk music, um, there's a lot of like different versions of songs going around. Um, so I will try to link to like Celtic Lyrics Corner if I find, um, find the lyrics, but usually Celtic Lyrics Corner is going to be lyrics to some published, like, like recorded 
album. Um, whereas like the, the number of songs that are on Topra and Dual Crush, it's, it's enormous, right? So I, I think it's often going to be hard to find those. Yeah. I've kind of, I don't know where they're coming from, but um, have you looked at Eliza Ross's stuff yet? No, I don't think so. She like the they've done a lot of work, and um, I don't know that she wrote down the lyrics too often. But the the edited collection that um, like the people that put together the edited collection included the um, lyrics quite often when they could find them, and often they were using sources in Nova Scotia for for lyrics that Eliza Ross recorded on Ross A in 1812. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering if uh, some of these things might show up there. Um, Huh. Cool. So, uh, so yeah. I, I par- partially this interview is, uh, or this this chat is sort of an introduction because I'm hoping that we can look forward to an episode or two or more in the future where you kind of share this stuff with uh, on the podcast. Is that is that a thing? That's a thing. Oh man, I'm super on the spot. I'm on the record now. Yeah, totally. I I would I would like to do some more. Yeah. All right. Cool. So. Um, do you want to, how do you envision that, or do you want to tell people what to expect, mm-hmm. if you have an idea of what to expect? Uh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I think I think a lot of times these tunes are kind of a one-off, like I find exactly one recording of it, and that's it, so there's not a lot to relate it to, um, and so, it, you know, it could be hard to build, like, a larger theme there, so I, I think there may be just a lot of variety in a given episode covering a handful of tunes but other times you know there's a song that that has many versions and and i think we could do full like we two twog deep dive style episodes um like there's there's a song i'm working on right now called i will go home to kintail hejmi yachi Chrochentale. and you know there's there's several great versions of that recorded alan mcdonald sings it on an album or two and it's in his book um, but there's like a few versions of that on the archives that are like distinct enough. They sound like a different song. So I, I think we could probably, you know, present the same song from several different versions, things like that. Um, yeah. So I think it'll be a combination of like deep dives about a single song and all of its different manifestations or just like medley of the week kind of stuff yeah that's awesome well i'm, I'm looking forward to it uh, i feel out of the loop that like i thought you only had one uh one tune posted so that makes me uh i was teasing you a little bit when tim mcdonald was like does this mean i have to like pay attention to blogs again it's like oh, we really right. should release this in a more uh contemporary uh fashion like a podcast which is also as old as blogs now but still uh somehow somehow feels like it survived but right. I love this. well I mean, it's printed music too which i think is um something that especially i think that's one of the strengths of like the highland piping community is that um like the default is to learn how to read music uh kind of unlocks a lot of things for you but it also mm-hmm. means then that a lot of us that started in highland piping don't know how to learn by ear so um so yeah it's cool that you're doing this work for people you can get yeah so let me let me talk about that aspect of it because I think it's interesting. Um, going back to a year ago, I I also thought, well, I've never learned music by ear before. Well, that's not true. I have in like Irish music sure. because that's pretty common. I've I had an Irish flute teacher for a couple of years, and that was in, exclusively by ear. So I had this whole skill set that felt like, you know, I only apply this in Irish music for some reason, sure. but in piping, no one has ever encouraged me to learn by ear. Um, so that, that's just kind of a shortcoming of my, like, uh, 
early piping training and, and I decided to dramatically correct it by only learning by ear for about a year. I sort of swore off sheet music as it were. And and nobody nobody wanted me to do that, right? Like taking lessons with Breacha, I was like, I'm not gonna touch sheet music and she's like, You you don't have to do that. But um um it just felt like a way to kind of swing the pendulum, right? Like get get through the growing pains of it. Um so yeah, I'm I'm back on the sheet music and it's it's a relief. Like it <laughs> I made some progress on the ear learning thing, but boy is it easier to just play what's on the page. But um sometime in a Zoom session last year I was playing I think my walking song set and and two people asked me for sheet music, which isn't a huge number of people, but I thought, wow, like people would like to have this and I have no way to actually share it with them. I can link them to the archive recordings and, and say like, have fun, like do it yourself, right? But I, so I thought, you know, at the very least I, I need to leave a paper trail. This is kind of a personal project of mine that is, is really good for me musically, but it seems like some other people could benefit from it. And um, so yeah, I'm resolved to kind of produce a lot of sheet music uh, as part of the blog, and then and hopefully that'll be there for some other people to uh, build up a similar repertoire. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, I, I like it. I like it. I, I'm envious of people that can learn by ear quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't decided to swear off sheet music or anything, but it's I'll, I'll go in fits and starts of like... I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, I, I actually did get told, I, I was told to do that. Uh, well, I don't know, I, I think... Uh, when I was watching the Piper Sunday with uh, Tiernan uh, Donahue, I can't remember his last name, but Tiernan is this amazing Ellen Piper. Um, oh, Tiernan Ch- O'Duncan? Yeah, yeah. And Oh, he's incredible. And I was asking him about um, ear, like learning by ear, learning by sight, and he's like, just, like, it's okay if you uh, read music, but you should quit and work on learning by <laughs> ear for a while, so you can mm-hmm. do both. Um, but yeah. Well, th- well there's my... Uh... You know, there's my my authority for yeah. doing that. Then yeah. I should I should have should have found him a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't crapping on on sheet music, but he was definitely saying it's a good skill to have, mm-hmm. uh, which is clear. But yeah, one of my I mean, my favorite collections of music, you know, from from the past are these ones that it's like a single uh, musician that is like transcribing the tunes that they play the most, right? Like the. William Lytton manuscript is just full of like the best tunes of 1800 it feels like and the Sutherland manuscripts from like Aberdeen are that way too of like oh here's what a piper thought were like all the good tunes in the 1780s um, and so it's yeah anytime I think because we live in an era where there's so much printed music available uh, it feels like few people are doing the work of like transcribing tunes that they play and it feels like a uh, it feels like something we've lost that it's good to good to get back to so I think it's rad. I think it's rad that you're doing it, and I look forward to uh, hearing you talk about more of these tunes on the podcast feed. I'm excited. Cool. I guess. Uh, I guess that's it. Well, thanks again, John Charles, for doing this chat, and we are going out to him playing uh, at the time of my recording this. This is the most recent tune he has done, which is Since My Love Turned His Back On Me, of course to feel. Uh, I'll have a link to his blog, uh, Awesome Tober, or From the Well, uh, in the show notes, so you can go check it out. 
Uh, otherwise, like I said, hopefully we'll hear from him occasionally on the podcast feed, uh, posting a whole episode of him looking at these tunes. Anyway, let's go out to the rest of Since My Love Turned His Back on Me.